Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. All right, uh, good morning, everyone. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Uh, we are just so grateful for the chance to get together like this and study your word together. We just pray that we, you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, and you'd have us hear and learn what you, what you would have for us today. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to talk about First and Second Thessalonians. And First and Second Thessalonians are fascinating to me because they take these two books, they take two concepts and put them together. Paul talks about two concepts, both in First Thessalonians and in Second Thessalonians, two concepts that seemingly have nothing to do with each other. And he puts them together and he mentions them both. And for, in First Thess and Second Thess, these two concepts come out and maybe it's just coincidence, but maybe they have something to do with each other. And these two concepts are the second coming of Christ and work. The end of the world and your job. So maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe those are two things on Paul's mind. Maybe there are two things that Thessalonians needed to hear, but he brings them up both times. And so that's what we want to talk about today and to see if there's any relationship between those two things, the second coming of Christ and work. And what we're going to do today uh, is in primarily focus on the whole concept of work. And I want to do that because I want to do this in particular because we rarely talk about this in the church. We talk about all kinds of things in the church. We talk about coming to Christ. We talk about your salvation. We talk about how to grow in Christ, holy living, sanctification. We talk about family. We talk about how to deal with suffering. We talk about all kinds of things. But we really talk about the whole concept of work. And I think that's because there are basically three different views of work within the Christian church. And I don't mean our church, this one in particular. I mean in the Christian church, three different views of work. There are probably more, but these are the three that I think of in my conceptualization. Three different views of work. First is that work is worthless. Your work is worthless. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Look, there are only two things that you come in contact with in this world that are going to last forever. And you're actually in contact with them, most of you, this morning. The Word of God and people. Those are the only two things that are going to last. Everything else around you is going to burn. Why are you wasting your time on worthless things? Your job as a contractor or your carpentry. If you're a real estate developer and you're building apartments, why are you wasting your time? The only thing that's going to last is the word of God and people, right? Everything else you're doing, if you're not in, in ministry, is worthless. Now, that's kind of a minority view. I don't think that's the majority view in our world. But it's still prevalent. I'll give you a short story. We uh, support this missionary, and we love her. She's great. She does great work. And she was over our house. She was fundraising. We support her. We continue to support her. But she was over our house fundraising, and she kept saying, you know, missions. Missions are just at the heart of God. Missions are at the heart of God. At the heart of God, missions. She just kept, as a phrase, look, she was fundraising, so I can't blame her. So she just kept saying this. And you know, later in the evening, oh, you know what you find when you peer into the heart of God? Missions. Because missions are right at the heart of God. They're just the heart of God is missions. And about halfway through dinner, she looked up from her plate and she said, oh, uh, Jim, how's work going for you? And I said what I think any rational person would have said at that moment. I said, it's fine. It's fine. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but it's obviously not at the heart of God, is it? Right? It's just work. Even she would not say this is this, this view. I think this is a little bit of an extreme view, but I think it's still out there. It was definitely the dominant view in the Middle Ages, and we'll come back to that. The second view is work is tolerated. It's okay. It's okay. It's tolerated. You know, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work is for the Lord and not for men, right? But the, the purpose of your work is to win souls for Christ. It's a platform for evangelism and to make money so that you can support missions because they are at the heart of God, Right? So go to work, and if you say, well, I'm going in this certain field, I'm going to do this kind of engineering in this field, people would say, oh, that's great because we need Christians there to witness to people at the job, on the job, right? So, so the purpose of your work is to save souls for the lost, do evangelism on, on the job, and make money so you can support the church. 
But make no mistake, even in this view, the work itself that you're doing, the actual substance of the work you're doing, is still worthless. But it has a purpose. Save souls, make money, give it to the church. There is a corollary to this, or a subcategory, a little carve-out for those of you who are in the helping professions. That's, that's better. That's okay. So if you're in medicine, if you're a first responder, you're maybe a teacher, you're a social worker, you know, you are directly helping people. That's good. But if you're a carpenter, you work at a factory, sorry, right? We're helping people directly, we can see. But all this other stuff, you're in accounting, banking, banking, forget about it. The third view is that your work itself, the substance of your work itself is worthwhile. And the point I want to explore today is, could this even possibly be true? Is it possible that the work itself that you're doing, the actual substance of the work, is actually worthwhile? Dorothy Sayers had an essay she wrote shortly after World War II. It's still relevant today. It was called Why Work? And she says this. She said, nothing has a church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the so-called secular vocation. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. And therefore, the church is astonished that work in the world has been turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that many have become disinterested in religion. But is this astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion or faith that has no concern for nine-tenths of his or her life? I've been going to church for 40 years, more than that. And in, that, in all that time, we talked about the world of work and what you do in the secular vocation less than a dozen times. So I want to spend like this next hour that we have really talking about this concept of work. And what I'm going to do today, I'll tell you what we're going to cover today. I'm going to give you a very brief overview of First and Second Thessalonians. It's going to be the briefest overview of a book of the Bible, two books of the Bible, that the Men of the Word Bible Study has ever seen in the last 20 years. Three to five minutes, like that. We'll go a quick overview of the, of, the, of the first and second fest. Then I'm going to talk about the second coming, spend some time on that, and then we'll talk about work. Okay? So, uh, and then a couple program notes. Uh, I have an appendix to this that gives a more fulsome outline of First and Second, Second Thessalonians. Maybe we can post that later, give a PDF out to everybody. It also references some resources. Tim Keller, actually, who usually I gather a lot of inspiration from when I look at these things and talk to you guys. He has six sermons on work. They're all available free. You'll have some place where you can go get those if you want for, to do further research on this. He also has written a book called Every Good Endeavor. A lot of them, I'm going to say, comes from some of those thoughts, but not everything. You'll see there's a bunch of other thoughts that I've drawn from that are put together here. And then there's some of my own thoughts as well. So that actually the truly bad stuff is from me and you can reject all that. So that's just because there's some uh, program notes. Uh, and then one other thing, I got to say this before I go on. I was practicing for this talk and uh, talking about work. And my wife said, you know, you sound a little angry. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, I probably do. It's a little, a little edgy. You may have already sensed this tone already. Okay. So I got to confess and apologize for that. I don't mean to be that way. Greg and I talked about this a lot. Greg, you probably picked up on that already. I don't mean to be that way. And I want to, so I really got to say, first of all, the, 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 those of you who are in full-time Christian work, and I see Greg, Marius, Pastor Jim, the Lord has called into full-time work. We got to applaud what they do and say we're grateful for what the Lord is doing in their lives. Okay, so we make sure we're very clear about that. We all appreciate that. So if I sound a little edgy talking about this topic, please forgive me. I'm working on it. Really, I am. Okay. Here's your overview. Thessalonica, when Paul was ministering at the town of Thessalonica, it was a town of about 200,000 people. It was five times the size of Jerusalem. It was a city of commerce and business. It was because of where it was located geographically on prominent trade routes. So for Paul, who would have been ministering in Jerusalem, when he came here, this was like coming to the big city. He came there. He spoke for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. You can read about it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17. And then he left. He was chased out of town. So he's worried about the church. He sent back Timothy. Timothy comes back and gives him a report. He says, actually, the church is doing pretty well. They're thriving, but they are suffering persecution. And they do have a bunch of questions, notably about the second coming. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Most scholars think it's the first epistle that he wrote. He probably wrote it from Corinth. There's some dispute about that, but most people say this is the first epistle that he wrote. And then shortly thereafter, like within a year or two, he writes them another letter, 2 Thessalonians. Now, here is the outline, quick overview of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, the first section is really a celebration of faithfulness and connectedness. Paul comes by and he says, 
I'm so glad that you guys receive the gospel, that you're doing so well. And he, in fact, he uses both maternal and paternal metaphors to talk about his fond affection for them. In chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he uses a paternal metaphor, and he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So this incredible sense of connectedness that he has with them, even after only spent three weeks with them. And then this wonderful verse, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? He says, when I look forward to heaven, I look forward to crowns in heaven, look forward to my reward. You know what that is? It's you. You're going to be there with me. God's used me in the ministry to help you in Christ, and you're going to be there with me, worshiping him forever. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are my reward. This incredible connectedness and bodiness, so celebration of faithfulness. That's the first part. And in this first part, the first three chapters of First Thess, the word gospel shows up six times. And this is an important message that Paul does where he, he gets the sequence of the gospel and is communicating the sequence of the gospel. And the sequence of the gospel is massively important because what he says is you got the gospel, you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel. And the gospel message is salvation is received and not earned. He received it as a free gift. Then in chapter four, he starts talking about holy living. Here's what you need to do. If you had started First Thessalonians with chapter four, Christianity would sound like a very different religion. It would be a list of do's and don'ts. And as Greg said so well a couple weeks ago, all the other religions are about do. Christianity is about done. And so the gospel comes across. You got the gospel. Now, now that you know the gospel, though, there are some things you need to focus on, things that need to change in your life. So the gospel comes out. Second part is a challenge to grow. It talks about sexual purity, which we won't talk about at all today, and work, which we will talk about. And then the day of the Lord. This is where he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And I, I'll get this out. I just uh, heard one commentator on this. It was really good. He said, when Paul talks about, you know, it's going to come like a thief in the night and when it's going to come, he said, all these verses about the second coming are really not here to fill out your calendar. They are here for your character. And I thought that was just fantastic. They're not here so you can try to figure out when is he coming back. God has already promised you can't know that. They're here for your character and also for your comfort. And then 2 Thessalonians Here's a quick outline. Hope despite persecution. The church was suffering, and so Paul gives some words of hope for them as they go through their persecution. And then he goes talks about the day of the Lord again, the second coming. And this time it's a little different because the church had been told by false teachers that Jesus had already come back. And you missed it. You've been left behind. And Paul addresses that and says, you haven't been left behind. He has not returned. When he returns, there will be all kinds of signs. You won't miss it. Don't worry. He has not come back. And then, again, a challenge to the idol, a long section on work and the importance of work. Okay, that's your overview in about five minutes. Now, the second coming. Let's read some passages. Rex, could you read for me first? You can read from the screen or from your Bible. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's great. Thank you. And Ray, if you could read this next one. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have to, no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Thank you, Ray. Second coming, the end times. I already made one confession to you in this talk. I want to make a second confession to you, is that when I was a young Christian, I became a Christian in the 70s. That was the age of Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, the Left Behind series, all this stuff. I love this eschatology stuff. Study the end times, the millennium, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, three-quarter trib. I loved all that stuff. And I really want, you know, want to figure it all out and look for the signs of the times. And then I finally said, you know what? God has promised you cannot know. And so I became a very devout pan-millennialist. And that's been my standard joke 
ever since then. It'll all pan out in the end. I avoid this topic. I've sit, for the last decades, I avoid this topic like the plague. I said, look, at the end of time, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's the promise. He's going to take me home. We'll be together in heaven. We'll be floating the clouds. We'll be playing a harp. It'll be like endless choir practice for the all millennium. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm happy about that. I'll just be with him. And I don't need to figure all this stuff out. So being a devout pan-millennialist, it maybe was not the right idea. And maybe it was not such a good thing. Because in preparing for this talk, I actually found this statistic that the second coming of Christ is mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. It's like every 16 verses. The whole idea of the second coming of Christ is a big part of the Christian faith. And I think my attitude being a pan-millennialist thing, ah, I don't want to talk about it. It was a little dismissive of all that. So there are some things to be gained. Now, what I don't want to talk about today, we won't talk about today, is this whole pre-trib, post-trib millennial stuff. Jim Love actually talked about that a couple months ago, and then Dr. Bob's going to talk about Revelation coming up, so plenty of time to talk about that stuff. But today I want to talk about what does the afterlife look like, and what is our hope, and think about how that relates to the world of work. So with that in mind, a couple verses. The afterlife, the way it's described in the Bible, seems to describe a very physical future, not the floating on clouds playing harp thing I was envisioning. And if you look, for example, at Isaiah 65, it starts in the Old Testament and carries over to the New Testament. Isaiah 65 talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 and verse 12, see, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Sounds like a physical activity in the afterlife, building houses, planting vineyards, agricultural activity. Isaiah 60 Isaiah 60 on its own is just fascinating. It's a whole depiction of the, of, the, of the afterlife and the future. And in Isaiah 60, Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, and all the nations of the world are bringing their wealth to him. And it actually says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish. Tarshish is Spain. So there's a reference to some geographical place called Spain in the afterlife. And maybe it's purely metaphorical. It's pure allegory. But it seems very geographical and physical. The nations, if you read Isaiah 60, are bringing all their wealth, gold and silver. So ostensibly they're mining gold and silver. They're bringing their flocks and herds. So there's still, you know, dealing with livestock. Maybe again, maybe pure allegory, but it seems to describe a physical future. Psalm 2, I've read this a thousand times. I don't know why I didn't see this before. This is the, the psalm that says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, right? So we, we kind of know it for that. But in Psalm 2, you are my son, the father talking to the son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Again, it sounds like a physical future with nations. And if you're describing nations in the afterlife, that means there's cultural identity in the afterlife. It'd be all Christians, but you might still have a cultural identity, even in the afterlife. And then, of course, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a reference back to the Isaiah 55 passage, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Verses rich with meaning, but this whole idea of the new Jerusalem coming down to earth, I mean, I always thought God was going to come and take me home, take me out of this earth. Some place in the clouds. This is a little different. This sounds like the end of time. The new Jerusalem is God coming down out of a new heaven to a new earth. What does all this mean? Oh, one more thing. I don't have them listed for you here, but in the New Testament, there are six references to eating and drinking in the new kingdom. So for, for example, this is where Jesus says, This cup I will not, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in the new kingdom. Right? References to what seems like physical activity. So Two views on what this means. Two views on the new heaven and new earth. One is that it's all going to burn up and be completely destroyed. And there'll be then a new earth that's created ex nihilo, out of nothing. And this comes from Second Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There it is. It's all going to be burned up right there. But according to his right promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, another reference to new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. So why are we talking about this? If you remember that first view of work that I gave you when I was giving the three views of work, 
It's all driven by this idea from, from uh, Second Peter. It's all going to burn. In other words, what's the connection between the end of the world and your work? Some of you probably caught this, but in that first view of work, when you say, why are you wasting your time with work? It's all going to burn. That entire view of work is all eschatological. It's driven by your whole idea of what's the, what is going to happen at the end of time. And if you say at the end of time, it'll all be burned up. The only thing that's going to last is God and people. Why are you wasting your time building tables and chairs or your carpentry when it's all going to burn? That whole view of your secular vocation is driven by your eschatology. So they're completely connected. And that view comes from basically this passage. says It's all going to burn up. But there's another view, and that this whole earth... Everything you're, uh, around you is going to be redeemed and restored. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that this is the majority view in the Christian church, but it's interesting. I'm not sure about it, but I'm going to present it to you today for your consideration, okay? It comes from verses like this, Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the palingenesia, when the Son of Man will come and sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So first of all, there's a reference to, to some kind of hierarchy or rulership structure in the new heavens and new earth, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus refers to it as a regeneration, a palingenesia. And the word would have been familiar to the listeners at the time. It's a word that only appears twice in the New Testament. It's a word that is, it comes out of Greek philosophy, and their, their philosophy was that all history was cyclical in nature, that every once in a while everything got kind of out of whack, and there would be a great purging by fire, and it would all be reborn. And then the whole thing would start all over again. It would all get out of whack, and all be a great purging by fire and reborn. And so Jesus said, when I come back, instead of my throne, there's going to be a palingenesia. The listener would have said, whoa, so it's true. There is going to be a palingenesia, but not an endless cycle of palingenesia is one focal point to which all of history is going. What The palingenesia of all things. Now, I, I probably don't have time for this, but I just want to, it's, it's so cool, I got to mention to you. The, the word palingenesia comes up one other time in the New Testament. It's in Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Just fascinating. So he says the power that's going to come when I sit on my glorious throne and rule over all things is going to regenerate the entire creation. That is the power that comes into your heart and your life when you become a Christian. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? That's what's happened to us when we accepted Christ. That power. The palingenesia comes into your heart. That was just an aside. Jesus talks about the palingenesia when he comes again. In Romans 8, Paul writes, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, this is verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation subjected to slavery, subjected to corruption because of the fall. And when Paul writes in Romans 8, it says, someday it's all going to be free from that. That doesn't sound like obliteration. It doesn't say, well, you know, all of this creation was subject to slavery, so God's just going to obliterate it and destroy it. It says it'll be set free from its corruption. That sounds like something different than utter and total destruction. T. Wright writes about this, and his view is that Jesus is both the model and the means for making this happen. Jesus is the model for redeeming us, and the model Jesus gave us is his resurrected body. So, so the idea here is that well, the, the example that we have in all of history for what the afterlife looks like is Jesus after the resurrection. He came back and had a glorified body that was physical. He ate fish, but it was glorified. It had different physical properties. He could walk through walls. Right? But, in, but, but it was physical. In Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see I have. So in his glorified body, Jesus had flesh and bones. That's the model. And so for us, if you apply to us in Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So the glorified body Jesus has, that's our future. 
physical body, flesh and bones, but a glorified body without all the aches and pains, right? That's what's waiting for us. But the idea here that goes beyond that is that if his resurrection is also not just redeeming us, but for redeeming all of creation. And it comes from verses like this, Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this view, for your consideration, is that the, the power of the cross, the redemptive power of the cross, was not just to save human beings' souls, the Christians, right? But also to read the power is so powerful, it was there to redeem all of creation. And if you look ahead to uh, how that applies to creation, it's in Acts 3, verses like this. This is Acts 3, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Fascinating here, verse 21, it's like there's two time periods that are talked about. There's a time period where Jesus is, is ascended, he's, he was, uh, after he ascended into heaven, in heaven, and then another time period that happens with the restoration of all things. But this doesn't sound like the burn it all up viewpoint. This sounds like his redemptive power is going to restore all things. Now, you might say, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure about it either. But let's look at some uh, prominent people who do adhere to this viewpoint. One of these people is Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book called Heaven. There are like 9 million copies sold. I imagine some people in this room have read this book. Randy Alcorn says this, as we have seen in a number of passages that use words such as renewal and regeneration, the same earth destined for destruction is also destined for restoration. Many have grasped the first teaching, but not the second. Therefore, they misinterpret words such as destroy to mean absolute or final destruction rather than what scripture actually teaches, a temporary destruction that is reversed through resurrection and restoration. And he quotes Anthony Hokima, who was a professor of theology at Calvin Theological Seminary, who's since passed away. He says, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth in which Satan deceived mankind and finally banished from it the results of Satan's evil machinations. So in short summary, what he's saying is if you believe that this entire is just going to be burned up, then Satan wins. So God says, look, I created this earth. I put Adam and Eve on this earth to cultivate the earth, to have this paradise on earth. Oh, shoot, they sinned. Well, in that case, I'll just burn the whole thing up. I guess it didn't work out. Satan wins. And what he's saying is, no, Satan's not going to win. God's going to restore this creation. A couple more for you. You say, I've never heard of Anthony Hakima, but many of you have heard of John Piper. John Piper argues that God did not create matter to throw it away. He writes, when Revelation 21 verse 1 and 2 Peter 3 verse 10 say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not have to mean that they will go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is a real passing away and there is a real continuity, a real connection. And then someone else you may have heard of, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that was a preacher in London. Tim Keller often quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the internal state that what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. Men and women are meant to live in the body, and we will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. So what does this mean? If this is true, that means this present earth, God is going to recreate and, and, and redeem. Don't know exactly what that means. Don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Because you might say, well, what does it mean when Jesus had a glorified body? Did his DNA 
reconfigured? Did the molecular structure of his body change when he has just talked about that? We don't know. God doesn't describe that. We don't need to know that stuff. But he's saying if, if this entire present world is restored, it puts a whole new meaning on verses like, do your work for the Lord and not for men. So if you are a real estate developer and you are developing apartment buildings and you say, I'm developing this apartment building and I've been told at church, do your work for the Lord, not for men. That means I should do my work hard. I should be honest and do it with integrity. I should witness to people at work and I should make my money and give it to the church. Right? That's what it means. But you might say, I'm going to finish this apartment building on Tuesday and the Lord might come back on Wednesday which literally would mean that apartment complex would be part of his kingdom, which puts a whole, if that's true, I'm not sure that it's true, but if it is true, that means it puts a whole new spin on do your work for the Lord and not for men. Look, if you're an engineer, if you're a civil engineer, and you're designing this bridge, you say, I'm going to design this bridge over this river, and it's going to have this beautiful arc that spans this river and bears the weight, and I'm going to make it beautiful because this bridge just might be part of his kingdom. I'm doing my work for the Lord and not for men. It puts a totally different spin on doing your work. It just might be part of his kingdom. And look, and if it's not, if it's the other view, it says, no, 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 you don't understand. All this is going to be burned up completely. A new heaven, new earth, something totally different. God at least will say, look, in the new heavens, I promise you, we're going to build homes and live with them. So you, your real estate developer who built those apartment complexes, I love the way you did that. I love the way you did manage that project. I've got a ton of mansions to build. Come with me. It's a very different view of the value of your work in the next life. So, so what? So what? What's the connection between this physical future and our work? Implications for work. Implications for work about this whole view of the uh, new heaven and new earth. First of all, a contrast. In Eastern philosophy... Actually, I should just stop there for a second. Any questions or comments on this so far? Anyone, any... Questions or comments? I should just take a pause here. Yeah, over here. There seems to be some additional support for this, now that I'm thinking about it, in the way that God destroys all the land, at least in the creatures on the earth, when he has Noah build the ark, and then promises not to do it again. Right. I mean, the, the apparent view of that is that he promises not to destroy people again. But I'm not sure that's what it actually says, right? He promises not to cause that kind of calamity again. So that would, again, support the view that what he created on the earth wouldn't be entirely annihilated again. Yeah, thanks for the comment. And I, I, I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of the flood and the rainbow, because I've often thought when we see the rainbow, it's the most underappreciated promise in Christianity, because there's so much sin in the world, right? Whenever I see a rainbow, I think, I can't believe you don't just come back and burn this whole place right now. And the promise that he says, I'm not going to do that despite all the sin in the world. I'm not going to bring the flood back and do that. Just the most amazing promise. We had another comment. Yeah, a couple quick points. When you talk about work, and I know we're going to get more into it. But one of the things the scriptures in the Bible says that your work will be tried by fire. And if it survives, you'll get a crown. So our work is always to be to God, regardless of what the results are going to be. Secondarily, the you are correct. We do not know the times of the day. And so, but he says we should know the season. And I think prophetically in the last 100 years, so much has happened prior to this first, this last 100 years that more things prophetically are coming true more and more and more. And it's a very interesting time frame. So we should know those times. Hmm. And when we definitely are in those times, the end of the end times. The third question I have is that when you were mentioning Isaiah, to whom was Isaiah speaking to? Was he speaking to the Jews or was he speaking to the Christians? Because it really makes a difference in the word to what group of people he, that he's speaking to. And sometimes we try to confuse that by, like, if it's written to the Jews, we assume that it's written to us, the Christians, when right. it's not. Right. So right. in the physical sense, I believe that the Jews will be here after the, the tribulation period and repopulate the earth. Yes. Yeah. Well, good point. You take verses like uh, Jeremiah. Where he says, I know the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and offer calamity. And he's speaking to the Jews, and we appropriate that verse for ourselves. He knows me personally, knows the plans. So there's a question of, what does that verse really apply to me? But I do think when he's talking about the new heavens and new earth, he's talking about something for everybody, not just for the Jews. Three different views of reality, and I want to contrast them with Christianity. The Eastern religions view that this whole world, everything is an illusion, not really real. In Greek and Roman thought, the idea was that there is matter, but the spiritual is good and physical is bad. So they would say that the manual labor, those kind of professions are the worst. Digging ditches is the worst. The thing you should try to aspire to do is be a philosopher, deal with the mind, 
right? Uh, because the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. And Christianity is very different. Just like Marius was saying, like the C.S. Lewis talks about this and others, God created matter. God loved matter. God created the world and rested from his work and said, this is good. We have a creator that starts off creation with his hands in the dirt. God loves that. So what is that? What are the implications of that? Work is work. All of your work is an extension of God's creative work. It's bringing order out of chaos. What God was doing in the beginning of time, when the spirit was moving over the face of the deep and everything was in chaos, God was taking that, bringing order out of chaos, order out of chaos. This is a different paradigm, a different way to view your work. It's bringing order out of chaos. It is an extension of the creative work of the father. So if you're a carpenter and you see all these two by fours and box of wood on your shop floor, you're going to take all that chaos and turn it into chairs and tables, cabinets, something beautiful. You're bringing order out of chaos. If you're an accountant, you see all these numbers and you're going to take these numbers, you're going to line them up and create these financial statements. They're going to let this business raise capital, fund itself, create jobs. You're bringing order out of chaos. If you're a lawyer, you're going to take words, put them together to contracts so people can rely on so they can work together. But this is a different way of looking at your work as an, ex an extension of the Father's creative work in creation. And then what Maurice was just talking about, isn't work the curse of the fall? I'll hear people say this all the time. Yeah, I got to go back to work on Monday. Yeah, it's the curse. That's the curse. And the answer is no, work is not the curse of the fall. There was work before the fall, just like Marius was saying in Genesis 2, God said, this is before the fall. I want you to cultivate the garden. There was work before the fall. Now, that was a, not a cursed garden because the fall hadn't happened yet. They were, they were working in a non-cursed world, so there was no corruption and decay. Then after the fall, God says, I still want you to work. There's just going to be lots of thorns and thistles. So you're working. The work's not cursed, but the world you are working in is. You're working in a cursed world, subject to corruption and decay. It's, it's still work. It's a lot harder. And the promise is that when, the, when Jesus comes and there's a restoration of all things— that you're going to be pursuing that creative work, that extension of bringing order out of chaos, pursuing that kind of work in a non-cursed world where there's no corruption, where there's no selfish ambition, no deceit. Work will be just like it was in paradise. Work will be easy again. And by the way, so the the reconciliation, this is true whichever view you take. We say it's all going to burn up. There's a new heaven and new earth, or this earth is going to be restored. Either way, that work in the new heaven and new earth, whichever view, is this going to be an extension of God's creative work in a new and restored perfect world. Now, in preparing for this, I was thinking if only there was a Bible passage that really directly connected work in this time period when between the first and second coming and work in the afterlife that directly talks about that. And fortunately, there is. It's a Bible story that's very familiar to most of us. It's usually not talked about for this proposition so bear with me. We'll talk about it today. It could be its own Bible study, so I won't spend that much time on it. I only want to present it for this one proposition. It's the parable. Most of you will know it as the parable of the talents. In Matthew, it's called the parable of the talents. In Luke, it's called the parable of the minas. And of course, it depends on your translation. If you have the NIV, the, the Matthew version will be called the parable of the bags of gold. But the story is essentially the same. And the parable of the minas in Luke I'll just read it to you. It's going to be very, it's not the whole thing. This is just the intro, but most of you know the story. This is Luke 19, verses starting at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, let me stop there for a second. The intro here is really kind of important. And honestly, I glossed over this for a lot of my Christian life. The setting of this story is important. I just skipped that part of that. Wow, it's once upon a time. Once upon a time, there's a guy to go in, and then I went right to the substance of the story. So what's the lesson for me in the story? But the setting is kind of important because Jesus and Luke is saying, these people think my kingdom is coming immediately. I need to tell them that there's going to be a time span between my first and second coming. In the Matthew version, it's in Matthew 25. It comes right after Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is a long discourse that Jesus has about the end of time. And then in Matthew 25, he says, let me tell you about that. This is a story about the time period between the first and second coming, and then what it looks like after the second coming in the afterlife. Back to verse 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Right? I'm coming back. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. Verse 13. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Think about how Jesus puts himself in the story as the one who's hated. 
Verse 15, when he returned, he, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to them, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over 10 cities. And then the rest of the story, you know, the one person goes back and he's like five, they get five cities. And then one, the last person had taken their mina buried in the ground. And Jesus says, you wicked servant, take that mina away from that us, put, and give it to the one who has 10. And people in the crowd actually object and say, Lord, he already has 10. He says, I don't care. Give it to the one who has 10. So what, is, what does this mean? There's lots that impact in this little story. I'm just going to bring it up, like I said, for one proposition. The setting, I think, is important. It's the period of time between the first and second coming, and it connects that work now and the work in the afterlife. And it's a story about economic activity. The story literally says, I'm going to give you money. Do business till I come back. And then the ones who do that well get 10 cities in the afterlife. So something about cities in the afterlife where there's actually economic activity. So it talks about that on its face. Now, the fascinating thing about this story is that if you look at commentaries, it's so easy to take your own biases and read those biases into the Bible as you're reading them. That's why this study is so important. So we can be men of the word, so we can really dig in the Bible and really study it and try to understand it. But people come to a passage like this with their own biases. So some commentaries you read, you say, ah, right here, full-throated support of capitalism. Which is probably overstating the case because capitalism really wasn't fully invented at that time. Other commentaries will say, look, whatever the story means, whatever it means, it's absolutely not defending capitalism. Whatever it means, it definitely is not pro-business because we know that that's bad. It's all bad. It's all based on greed and self-interest, and that's anti-Christian, and we know that's bad. So whatever the story means, it definitely doesn't mean that. So people come to it with their own biases, right? And the people that take that bias in the commentaries I read will say, I know it says business. I know it says dealing with money. I know it says that, but it doesn't mean that. What it's really talking about is using your gifts and talents, using your abilities to serve other people. They would read this passage and say, what this means, it's something like this. If you say you have the gift of singing, you're a good singer. That's really good. You should, you should use that gift of singing in the service of others. So you should join the church choir. It's the ability you have, so use that in the church, use that to serve others. That's the way they read it. And to be honest, to be really fair to those kinds of commentators, that's actually kind of the way I read this story, both this version of Luke and in Matthew, most of my Christian life. You've got certain gifts and abilities. You should use them. That's actually probably a decent lesson. But the story on its face is talking about economic activity. The actual story is talking about, you know, God says, I gave you money, do business till I return. So... What can we learn from the story without making too much or too little of it? It's a story about growth. God says, I've given you one minute, and then one guy comes and makes 10 out of it. In this version, everyone gets one minute. In the Matthew version, one gets five, one gets three, and so on. But they're both about growth. Growth. Why, why would growth be good? Why would God even want growth? Why would that even be possible? Why would God want that? And the answer is, growth means meeting needs. The person who has the one mina, God doesn't say how they made 10 minas out of it, but no matter what they did, they did it by meeting needs of others. They did it by growing their business or whatever it was. I have a nephew who's got a auto repair shop in Garfield Heights. He does great work and he does it cheaper than the dealership. He started up a couple years ago, people are beating a path to his door. So he's hired another mechanic. He's taking out space in the shop next door, clear that out, expanding his business. He's growing. Why is he growing? Because he's meeting needs. Now, if he said something, I said, well, you know what? I don't want to do that kind of stuff. I want to do something else with my life. I, my dream is to work on dune buggies. I only want to work on dune buggies. We say, well, there aren't that many of them in Northern Ohio. You can do that if you want. And he says, I don't understand it. This is my dream. I'm living my dream. I'm doing this and, and my, my business is failing. Well, that's because you're not really serving anybody by only maintaining dune buggies in Northern Ohio. Good for you following your dream, but you're not serving anybody. So I say, when well, business isn't growing, if your business is growing, the way he's doing it now, you're meeting needs. The person who turned their one meeting into 10 is meeting needs of others. The one who takes their meeting and buries in the ground says, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to plug into society. I don't have to serve anybody. I just buried it in the ground. And what God is saying is like, when you are growing, whatever it is you're doing, so you're a carpenter, people love your work. And so you keep getting more, you're doing that because you're serving others and you're plugging in, you're creating an interconnected society and you're serving other people the way God wants you to. 
that's the point I want to take out of the story. And there's one more thing I want to mention this. At the end of the story, Jesus tells to the guy who has the one mina buried in the ground and says, why didn't you give it to the bankers? And I love that verse because I work in the banking industry. I've been banking for 30 some years. So I love that verse. Now, I, I got to tell you, if, if, if Jesus, if I was in the restaurant industry and Jesus had said, you wicked slave, why didn't you give it to a restaurant? At least they could have fed people. I would say, yeah, there's, there it is. There's the restaurant verse. I love that verse. So I love this verse because it's my industry, right? But what does he even say, give it to the bankers? What does that even mean? Because when you give it to the bankers, they are taking the, the raw material, idle funds, and taking it and redistributing it to other people that can't put it to productive use for growth. Look, in banking in general, you could take your own money right now and give it to some business startup. You could fund my nephew in Garfield Heights with a, with a dealership, and you could do that yourself, but it's very hard to know what's going to succeed, what's going to fail. Banks are in the business of doing that. They'll say, well, we know what startups are good, which are not bad. We know about their cash flows, you know about their financial statements, how much equity they have, their debt service coverage ratios, all that stuff. Give it to the banks, and then the bank can at least put it to productive work. Jesus doesn't say, everybody give your work to the bank. He said, this one had that idle money, at least do that so it can be redistributed. Why, is it a pro-banking verse? Not really. It's saying, I just want to get this, this to work for productive use for growth, to serve others. Anyway, it's, I, I want to mention, because it's such a curious verse, give it to the bankers. And of course, I like that verse. All right, Luther's view of work is probably more, far more important than that whole, that whole story about the uh, minas. Luther's view of work, the priesthood of all believers. At the time of the Middle Ages, the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was very clear hierarchy between spiritual work and non-spiritual work. That first view of work that I mentioned was the dominant view. So if you were in the priesthood, if you were a nun, if you were a monk, that was good. And all this other work was bad. They said this was the eternal state and this is the temporal estate. And we you know you were earning merit because you're doing the work of the Lord and the full-time Christian ministry and everything else is really bad. Luther came by and talked about the priesthood of all believers, which is probably a phrase many of you have heard before. And he talked about that phrase in a treatise he wrote called An Address to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. And the point of the priesthood of all believers was to say there is no distinction between the priestly class, the full-time Christian work, and everyone else's vocation. Let's read this to you. He said, it is pure invention that the Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. All Christians are the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptism. And he's playing off, and, he's, and, he's, and then he quotes the verse that says, you are royal priesthood, everybody. So he's saying there's no distinction. This is significant. He's also, and he expounds on 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, and other verses in 1 Corinthians 7 that say, only let each person lead the life to which the Lord has assigned to him and to, to which the Lord has called him. And Luther said that is the beruf, the German word for occupation, your profession. He said, the Lord has called you to your vocation, whether it's being called to the priesthood or being called to be a carpenter. God has called you that. That's your vocation. Both are equally valid in serving the Lord. It's a very different way thinking about your vocation, your work. But Luther was adamant about this, and that's the whole point of the concept of the priesthood of all believers. And he goes on to talk about this, and he gives examples, Luther does, of like the milkmaid and the farmer. And he says, you can stay in your kitchen and you can pray, oh Lord, please give me bread. Oh Lord, I need, I need milk, please give me milk. And Luther says, God has the ability to make that bread and milk appear on your table for you. But he doesn't. He chooses not to do that. So how does he meet your needs? How does he answer your prayer? Well, there's a farmer out there who plows fields, grows wheat, someone else who mills that wheat, turns it into flour, someone else who takes the flour, bakes bread, someone else who takes that bread, ships it to a market, someone else who runs the market, someone else who sells it to you. All those people are the hand of God to you. That was Luther's idea. So if you say, God, give me bread, God says, I am giving you bread. How am I doing it? Through work. Through the work of all these people, that is how I am meeting your needs. Same with milk and the milkmaid. Someone's out there milking cows. That is the hand of God to you to bring you your sustenance. That is how God's answering your prayer. When you see it that way, as long as you are doing work that is plugging into this world and serving others, all of your work, all that you do is the hand of God to somebody else, answering someone else's prayer for, for sustenance, for, to meet their needs. Very different conception of work. Now, why work? Two secular reasons to work. First, to make money. Second, to find an identity. To make money 
and defined an identity. These are the secular reasons to work. What are the Christians' reasons to work? They're found in 1 Thessalonians, back in 1 Thessalonians. Well, so we'll come back to this and read those now. But just to expound on this, so you, you, when you meet somebody for the first time, often you'll say, what do you do for a living? Because uh, our work is often the way we find our identity and understand who we are. And then, uh, so those are the, the secular reasons to work. Let's talk about then the Christian reasons to work in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 11. And then we get uh, Ray this time. If you could read this. Finally, brothers, we instructed you uh, how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's great. So it's a couple things you notice in this passage. God says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. So this is instruction on how to please God. And we all want to please God. So you say, well, what's he going to say? Two things that you need to do in order to please God in this passage anyway. First, avoid sexual immorality. Check. We all know that. And then he says, how do you, what else can you do to please God? And in verse 9, he launches into this idea of brotherly love. He says, we don't even need to tell you about this. You already know. You already know you're supposed to love each other. But then in verse 10, he says, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yeah, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. So how do you love people more and more? How do you please God? And how do you love people more and more? Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and work with your hands, just as we told you. So first, all little side later, he says, work with your hands. That flew in the whole face of that Greek idea. By the way, we've seen this in Thessalonica, right? That Greek idea that manual labor is bad. He says, work with your hands. That's good. There's no, there's no hierarchy of jobs in God's hierarchy. But the way you're serving people, the way you're pleasing God, the way you're loving people is through your work. And that is that Luther's idea of the hand of God to you. You're serving people through your work. So one reason to work is this, to please God by showing love to others. Second reason to work from 2 Thessalonians 3. Rex? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We are not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So a fairly lengthy passage on work and the importance of work. And I think for most of us, we'll read verse 10, and that leaps off the page. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's uh, pretty stark and pretty strong, right? So this is someone who has the ability to work and is refusing to work, and they, they're, they're, uh, they're not busy, they're busy bodies. They're spending their time gossiping and talking and being idle and living off other people. So that's the verse that most of us will probably notice in this passage, and that, like I said, jumps off the page. The verse that I want to focus on, though, is verse 12. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Earn the bread they eat. So in this world, you're, you're giving and you're taking. And what he's trying to say is you, you should be giving and making a contribution in this world more than you're taking, right? Don't just take, someone else puts it, don't, don't just take from others, give as well. You should be plugging into this world and making a contribution in this world. So work, and, and I missed this, the whole thing starts 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers. So on the topic of why work, it's the command of God. It's the command of God. We, we command you, brothers. It's the command of God and why to make a contribution to this world. So why work? That verse in First uh, Thessalonians, lead a quiet life and work with your hands. A quiet life, inner quiet. A job that fits me, that is my, my like Luther said, my baruf, my occupation. Something that is a fit for you. That's okay to have a job that fits you. To have that kind of inner quiet. But then a job that benefits the world. It fits me, but it's not for me. It's for, for the sake of others. Working for others to make a contribution to this world. Working for the Lord and not for men. And I'll just kind of end with a story here, and then we can take some questions and comments. My first job was when I was 15 years old, and I was, and actually it was illegal, I was underage, but a local McDonald's hired me anyway. And I, I worked from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., cleaning the toilets, mopping the floors, cleaning the counters, so the, so the McDonald's could open at 8 a.m. for customers. And I did that before school every day from 4 to 8 a.m. That was a pretty miserable job. By the way, if we start talking about the worst jobs ever, I'm sure some of you could top that with an even worse job, right? But I look back and then I think that probably was not the worst job because it's, life has been not real, real toil since then. Just that job, at least I didn't have the stress of re responsibility. I was not responsible for a whole lot. Work is just really hard. And that's why I want to talk about it today. And just to tell you a story. So coming from that job, I, a couple of years ago, I got a chance to serve on the board of directors at a, an organization called the Federal Home Loan Bank of Pittsburgh. And a lot of you probably have never heard of the Federal Home Loan Bank and the FHLB, the whole system. The whole country is divided into 11 different Federal Home Loan Bank districts. The Federal Home Loan Bank, the FHLB system, is actually the second largest issuer of debt after the U.S. government. It issues trillions of dollars of debt, takes that money, provides that as liquidity to the banking system so that banks can make mortgage loans to others. Banks make a mortgage loan, take that money, pledge it as security against the borrowings from the FHLB, get that liquidity, and can make out more loans to others so that people can buy homes. And that actually, behind the scenes, unbeknownst to a lot of Americans, is the machinery that makes this whole system work, part of the machinery that makes this whole system work. And I served on the board. There was a guy on this board that I really connected with. He's a great guy. We talked a lot. And then he got Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was dying. So he kind of got off the board. And this guy, by the way, he had, early in his career, helped set up that whole system. He set up the whole system of how to finance this and how to set up the whole thing. And now he served on the board in the later days of his career. But he was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. And so they went around, like a little bit like you do at a wedding, where they go around and give the, the microphone to everybody and take a video. Say, hey, give, give a greeting to John because he's not here and he's really not doing well. And they didn't do it in front of everybody. We went to some little room and sat down and did a little video. And in my whole life, I, I, I never think of the right thing to say at the moment. I always think of the right thing to say 30 minutes later. And so they say, okay, they say, have a greeting to John, okay? And I, okay, so I thought about this and I said, I said, you know, John, I've taught my kids my whole life that when they think about what profession they're going to do, what they're going to do, make a contribution to this world. Make a contribution to this world. Do something that fits you. Do something that you can, you can do that's a fit for you, but also that's not for you, that makes a contribution to this world. And I said, John, you've done that. You've been part of this whole system. You helped set it up. And I said, there's millions of people all over this country that are clicking on their stove this morning and cooking breakfast in a home that they have, with a roof over their heads, because you had a part in making that all possible. You made a contribution to this world. So whatever happens to you, I'm praying for your recovery, but whatever happens to you, you've made a contribution to this world. And I want to thank you for that. And thank you for being an inspiration to me and to my children. And John said, and he wrote me back. He said, oh, thank you so much. That helped me get through. Now, John didn't, you know, obviously, you know, the, the end of the story. John's not with us anymore. Towards the end of his life, trying to say, what have I done with my life? What have I done with all my time? Made a contribution to this world, a huge contribution to this world, and could feel good about that. So that's actually all I wanted to talk about. Now we can take time for questions, comments, more things. Lou. Jim, I, th I thought this was really good. I, I, I think the pr practical aspect is terrific. And, and the work that we do is so important. We don't realize. We don't realize the interconnectedness you know, the great tapestry, I don't know if, if uh, Pete Eklund is here today, but we were talking at Panera a few weeks ago, and he was talking about, you see the tapestry in front, but you don't see all the, the strings behind and how God has it all interconnected. It's just beautiful when you think about it. But what, what strikes me is that Jesus is, you know, the head of the church, and he's working. Yes. You know, he's interceding for us, right? Yes. The Holy Spirit 
is interceding for us. God is working on our behalf, right? So we have the pleasure, the privilege, the greatest honor and privilege I think any man can have is working with God, for God, and helping you know, to, to show our love to God by doing work for him. And when you think about it, Jesus is, he's working. And I think we have to take the positive aspect. Cause I don't know if you covered this or not, but Luther was asked, what would you do if the Lord came tomorrow? And he said, I'd plant a tree. That's right. And that, and I think that goes into exactly what you're saying about restoration. I believe that there's a continuation and, and that God is going to take this earth and restore it. And I, th I think the scriptures are there in Hebrews. I think, I think it's there in 1 Corinthians 15 when Jesus is putting all things under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. And God has put all things under his feet. And, you know, it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as long as we have that perspective that we're working for Jesus and he wants us to work, then I think you see that work can be enjoyable. Think back to what Eric Lytle said, you know, about, how when he ran, he feels God's glory. That's right. And that's what we have to feel in our work because it's all very important. We don't understand the importance of it. I think clerics were looked upon as somebody maybe superior. Yes. It's not like that. We all have our place. We all have our part and it all works together in the body of Christ. Amen. And since you mentioned it, what Lou mentioned was uh, Eric Little or Liddell. It's a story from the movie Chariots of Fire, which many of you have seen. And Eric Little, that was the, the Christian, he was running against a guy named Harold Abrams. And this comes out in the movie, Harold Abrams was a non-Christian. And he was, a, they, were both, they were both sprinters and in a hundred yard dash. And Harold Abrams, the non-Christian, he said, when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to prove my existence, to validate my existence. And many of us are working that way. He said, I've got to prove myself. I've got to justify my existence. And the other one, the Christian, Eric Liddell, who later became a missionary in China, he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, you know, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. You know, another story is John Coltrane, who became a Christian, and he wrote, who did phenomenal music after that, and he wrote one of the greatest jazz albums ever called The Love Supreme, and he just said, when I play, I just, you know, the same thought, I'm just playing for the Lord, feeling his pleasure, but the gospel message in all of this, and since you brought it up, because you guys know why Jesus is working, is that we can rest from all this work. Because his work is finished, right? He did the real work for us of salvation. He said, it is finished, it is done. I love that. And everything else it's due, every other religion is due, in Christianity it's done. And he rested from his work so we can rest from ours. Which means you can enjoy it because I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to justify myself. I'm already justified. Yeah, so thanks for bringing that up. Another one over here. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, if I can follow up on this kind of theme that you have about does it all get burned up or... How do, how do we reconcile these various passages? So first, let me rehabilitate Greek philosophy by applying some Aristotelian logic. That could only help. <laughs> Man is part of creation all the way back to Genesis. You might say the crown of creation. When you are, when you become a Christian, you are, quote, born again. You become a new creation. So this is the proof that when there is a new creation, as we read in Isaiah or Revelation, it's renewed because the Christian brothers here in this room, we will be with in eternity. They will have Flesh regenerated bones. bodies, glorified bodies, you know, hopefully I'll have 2020 eyesight then. But yet, I will be me, and others will recognize me as who I am. And so, yeah, we, we can't say it's all burned up. Right. It just, it, it doesn't make sense within the Christian worldview. Yes, and, and to pile on to that, Pat, I often say, yes, you, you'll recognize me and I'll recognize you, but in the next life, I will be six feet tall. <laughs> Absolutely, with, with six-pack abs and, yes, exactly. Another. So what, what you helped us do today is give us an eternal perspective. If we're working and understanding that what we're going to do here on earth is going to glorify the Lord and the body of Christ, that gives us the energy and the impetus to do what we're doing. Yes. And just like Eric Little, when I, when I run, I feel your pleasure. When we're doing what God designed us to do, it, it's not a chore anymore. Yeah. It's a joy. And that eternal perspective, uh, we're getting up in age, some of us, we have to keep in mind, we've only got so many more days to do this. 
And how can we impact the world around us, live as an example to our children and grandchildren? The legacy we leave is how the joy in our life, what, what propelled us, why? What was the point? I hope we can communicate that. And when he talks about the second coming, regardless of if it's tomorrow or whenever, let's not waste a minute and let's keep the eternal perspective. Amen. That's great. Thank you. I'm going to close in prayer with one of the passages right from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 23. So bow your heads. We'll pray this scripture together. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on your best days, you're never beyond the need God's grace. See you next time.